Hello. So if you didn't realise already, it's Mother's Day. And um, so I thought I would start with a few things that our mothers had taught us. Have I got the slide? I don't know. Um, the first one is, oh, this is what I'm talking about today, stuff I learnt from my mum. So there you go. And um, the first thing is, uh, one of the things, can I have the next slide please? It's my mother taught me about receiving. You're going to get it when you get home. Did you ever get that? I did. The next one is, um, my mother taught me about contortionism. Will you look at the dirt on the back of your neck? My mum used to say that to me all the time. <laughs> my mother taught me about a job well done. If you're going to kill each other, do it outside. I was told that heaps as a kid. My sister and I, we were always outside because we were always killing each other. And um, the last one... I like this one. My mother taught me about religion. You better pray that comes out of the carpet. <laughs> so I thought they were quite good. But actually, um, what I thought I would talk to you today is about some stuff I learnt from my mum. And, um, you know, I didn't have the normal sort of woman's day airbrushed kind of view on my mum. I, you know, you wouldn't have seen the typical maternal daughter relationship going on. And I just want to recognise, and I know Jacinda touched on it earlier, that Mother's Day can be a bit of a prickly issue for some of us. Because some of us have lost our mums already and some of us want to become mums. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that go on. And um, when I realised I was speaking on May 14th, I was thinking, ah, it's Mother's Day. Do I really, you know, want to go there? And, but I have, so <laughs> we'll see where it takes us. So, um, you know, my first point I wanted to make about things that my mum taught me is that life sometimes can get pretty messy. And um, why I say that is because my mum had a very messed up life. She was born in 1936 in a place called Southampton, England, um, which is right at the bottom of the, the nation. Just If you go any further, you're on the Isle of Wight. And um, so life started off okay, but then 1939 came along. And my mum uh, lost her dad very early in the war, being in the Merchant Navy, and he was drowned somewhere in the English Channel. And um, mum vaguely remembers the, the telegram coming. And that was the start of a really bad life for her. And she used to tell me stories. She'd be ironing, something I didn't learn from my mother, but she'd be ironing. And... Um, I'm, and I would sit with her and she would tell me all these stories because all my relatives were over in the UK. And so she would tell me all these stories about growing up in wartime um, Southampton. And it was a city that was targeted in the war because it was a port city. And down the road, it's actually one of the UK's biggest port cities, and down the road is Portsmouth, which is the big naval base. So, of course, the, the enemy was very interested in that part strategically of the UK. And um, she used to tell me stories of how her mum was never home for her because she was forced to take up um, work at the local pub. And she was never at home, and she spent a lot of time in the air raid shelters. She told me about the time when the shrapnel came down. It wasn't a direct hit, but shrapnel came down, and she lost her living room. And she told me about how the schools were shut, um, because, you know, it's too dangerous to be at school. So my mum didn't have much of an education. In fact, we used to tease her mercilessly because she could hardly spell, and we always whipped her in a game of Scrabble, which as a child you think is great, but when you think about it as an adult, you know, it's really sad. But I think um, injury to insult came for my mum was when one of the men that her mother brought home from the pub ended up being her stepfather, 
and she resented him to the day she died, I believe. And she, she had a very messed up beginning. And then she met my dad, and they had probably a bit of a messy marriage. They, they had two kids in the UK, and then to save their marriage, my dad came to New Zealand, got a job with the National Cash Registers, and started his life in Wellington, which probably didn't help. But then, um, so he went to Wellington, and a year later, my mum came and um, she brought two kids so my oldest brother and sister were born in the UK and they, um, she came out a year later which I kind of think is a bit suspicious but anyway that's what happened and um, then she had two kids in New Zealand to which I was one of them I was the last one and three months after I was born not that there's any relationship here but my mum was um, diagnosed well she wasn't diagnosed but she was um, taken to a psychiatric ward in uh, Pororua Hospital and she spent five years of her life um, in and out of hospital, more out than uh, more in than out. And I uh, was in foster homes. Not that I remember that too much. I just have memories of being with uh, my mum and dad. But the thing that was really sad for my mum is we lived in a very small town. And if anyone knows the Wairapa, we lived in a, a town called Carterton, where everyone knows your business. And so my mum was very well known in the town of being the lady who had a very messed up life. And I remember, it's quite funny and quite sad at the same time, I remember um, we would all walk to school, my brothers and sisters, and we would walk to school and kids would yell out, your mother's been in the loony bin, you know, and she was all known about that. And I was, I was the youngest, I had no idea what the loony bin was. I, I actually thought it had something to do with the loony tunes and thought it was something quite funny. But um, so, you know, the, the impact of that was lost on me, but it wasn't lost on my, my brother and my sisters. And um, she carried that stigma with her through the very small town. And, um, you know, the world is really cruel when it weighs up people, isn't it? You know, we look on the outward appearances and we make judgments sometimes in a flash of a second. We've already got your box done. We already know what you're about because we look at you and we make judgments probably based on our own insecurities half the time. But you see, we, we've made these things about judgments. So I often have thought, how does God weigh people up? And there's some really great examples in the Bible about how God sees value. And um, one of them is found in the life of a man called David. And David, there's, there's three character, key characters in the story I'm about to tell you. There's David, who is an insignificant shepherd boy who was the youngest. And then there's this prophet. And if you're wondering what a prophet is, it's basically just a normal person like you and me that happens to hear from God and then has the job of saying what God says. Not actually an easy task. And then there's this, um, and his name, what's the prophet's name? Samuel. And then there's, um, there's Saul, who's the existing king. And Saul is a, not, not doing so well. But anyway, Samuel the prophet was told to go to, Dave, go to David's family and say, I'm going to appoint a new king. Because the existing king isn't actually cutting the mustard very well. And I want you to go to David's family and appoint a king. He, said, he didn't actually let the prophet know. He didn't let Samuel know who actually was the person who's going to be this next king. He just said, go to the family. And so Samuel goes to David's family, and David's father lines up all his sons. You might know the story. And they look the part. They're tall. They're handsome. They look everything like a new king should be. But the, the prophet was rather bemused because he looked at all these 
people in front of him and he thought, no, actually none of them is who God has called. And um, so the prophet said, Samuel said to, um, to David's father, is this all your kids? Because this, this is not working for me. And so the father said, well, actually, I've got a younger son, but he's actually out looking after the sheep. You certainly wouldn't want to look at him, would you? And he said, bring him in. And then David, the insignificant son who was just out there looking after the sheep, was the one that carried the eternal promise of God to set up what was the beginning of the the best kingdom that Israel ever saw, but carried the eternal promise for the coming kingdom of God through his descendants. And it really was quite a striking thing. And the prophet said, um, or heard from God, that God said to him, It's not that I look at the outward appearances like man does. I look at the heart. And then we see it with Jesus, who is the direct descendant of... um, Oh, actually, before I go there, I just want to talk about how God um, set up David's kingdom, because that actually wasn't particularly tidy either. You see, David... Was, had this now was going to be this amazing king of Israel. And um, so God was about establishing his king, but there was this guy called Saul. Remember the king I mentioned before? He was the existing king that wasn't cutting the mustard. And God basically had David coming up through the ranks, but Saul got wind of that. And Saul actually was intensely jealous of David. And to the extent where Saul was after David's life, and they were running around the wilderness trying to kill David. And David finds himself hiding out in a place called the Cave of Adullam. And in this cave, it must have been a very large king, God starts establishing David's kingdom. But think about the people he brought to him. And I don't know if you can bring up the next slide. Because we find it in 1 Samuel, which is about, I don't know, five or six books into the Old Testament, based on the life of Samuel the prophet. And these are the people that God starts establishing, building around David's life. And everyone in distress... Ever been in distress? Anyone in debt? I won't ask you that because we live in Auckland. Or discontented? Gathered to him, and he became the commander of them, and there was 400. This is the people, the raw material that God uses to establish David's kingdom, which was going to be the most successful kingdom. Was it, you know, It's hardly my recruitment criteria. You know, if I was about to go and set up a kingdom, I'd be wanting the influential. You know, the people who know a few people. It's not who you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know, isn't it? I'd be wanting the clever people, the people that look the part, the people who've got good words. But that's not how God built David's amazing kingdom, and he was the most famous kingdom in all of Israel, and he was going to carry the in his descendants was Jesus. Because God looks at the heart. The second thing is we see it with Jesus. You see, when Jesus came as a direct descendant of David, carrying the eternal promise that was given to David to set up the kingdom of God, look at the people that gathered around him. Next slide, please. It's an Word got round the entire Roman province of Syria. People brought anyone with an ailment whether mental, emotional, or physical, and Jesus healed them all. 
people just like my mum. People probably in messed up lives that you may have touched or may have. See, this is the heart of Jesus. He does not look at the external like the world does. His scales are not, we, don't, we aren't weighed up based on what we look like or how big our mortgage is or how great a job we have or how many Facebook friends we have or Instagram connections. There's a really good quote by a guy called Dallas Willard that Matt put me onto, and plus another great friend of ours um, mentioned. And he sums up Jesus' ministry in a really great way. Can I have the next slide, please? It says, Jesus' fundamental message is the free availability of God's rule and righteousness to all humanity through reliance on Jesus himself. The person now loose in the world among us. Isn't that great? Oh, may he come loose on us. The person now loose in the world among us by taking those who from the human point of view are regarded as most hopeless, most beyond of all possibility of God's blessing or even interest, and exhibiting them as enjoying God's touch and abundant blessing. You see, God's kingdom isn't about us looking the part and having tidy lives. God is wanting to open up and extend the kingdom of God to all of us. We don't have to have it all together. You see, the world is really quick to write us off. Failure. Didn't make it. Don't cut the grade. And it's not like they give us clear criteria of when you're in or out. You don't know when you're in, but you certainly know when you're out. But that's not the way the kingdom of God is. Jesus himself was dreadfully criticised for hanging around with the wrong types of people. You see, when he came, he didn't hang out with all the good sorts. He didn't hang out with all the people that had it all together, that had all the trappings of success. He He hung out with the people that were probably a bit like people down at the pub. Or, you know, the people that you don't like to, to see or maybe look a bit smelly or might be, you know, just don't look the part. And when Jesus was criticised one day by one of these very successful looking people of um, ranging, hanging out with the wrong type of people, he turned round and he said, can I have the next slide please? It's not the healthy people who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to invite good people. And it's kind of amplified out to say like the self-righteous, the people who think they've got it all together, those who feel no need to change their lives, but sinners to change their hearts and lives. See, Jesus hangs around with people like you and me, people who are just normal. So what do we do with this message? I think there's a few things. I think, as Matt and Jacinda often say about Coast Vineyard, and I believe is true of the kingdom of God, can I have the next slide, please? Is that we are to come as we are, but we don't stay as we are. And like Dallas Willard said in his quote, is that as we rely, put our reliance on him, we learn to change. He does the changing from the inside out. 
And so we shouldn't fool ourselves to think that we've got to get it all together first before we can come to God. Because it's the other way round, I think. Because I think if we wait for us to get it all together, it ain't going to happen. Because I can't get it all together all by myself. And I discovered that a very long time ago. And we really need Jesus. So come as you are. You don't have to get it together. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to give up smoking. You know, you don't have to, you know, be perfect. You just come as you are and be honest with who you are. And that's the raw material that God can work with. As long as we put on robes and, you know, and make ourselves look good and masks and all that sort of stuff and work on the external, we're not going to get the real job done. And it puts a blockage in the way of the Holy Spirit doing stuff in our lives. He wants us to come just as we are. The second thing that messy lives teach us is, and it's found in Romans 12, it says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even knowing. Instead, fix your attention on God because you'll be changed on the inside out. We have to be very careful in this culture that we don't adopt the same criteria on people that the world does. If you see a messy person, you see someone that doesn't look the part or might have a psychiatric illness or might not you know, be able to spell things the way you can or do things the way you can, is that we've got to value them from what's in here, not from what's out here. And so I think that's a real challenge for us because our culture teaches us something very different. And God tells us clearly that we are to value people for who they are. See, we are all created in the image of God, and that's what we value. And we are patient and gracious why they, like us, are learning as we rely on Jesus to not stay as we are. The third thing and it's not on the slide, is that if we're really honest with ourselves about mess, is that we actually agree, probably, that we all have varying degrees of mess in our lives. And actually, we just have different ways of either letting it show or otherwise. You know, some of us have got very clever at hiding our mess, so that on the outside, we look just the part. But hey, we've all got, I won't say the word, you know, we've all got stuff to deal with. And um, I think when, <laughs> you know, when we're really honest with that, that's an invitation that God gives us ever so graciously to come and sort it out with him. And some of those things come in the way, so it might not be that you'll see me smoking out the back, but you might see that I'm really struggling, struggling with things like selfishness or private addictions or arrogance or some of these things that create distances between us and God and us and one another. That's mess as well. And we need to sort us, you know, we need to take God at his word and start sorting out through some of this stuff. So my mum taught me about mess. My mum also taught me about prayer. For as much as my mum couldn't articulate a clever sentence, she knew how to pray. Now, she went along to this church called the Carterton Baptist Church and I was dragged along under great duress as a kid with my sister. We hated it because it was dead boring, dead boring. We would go in there and there would be a panel on the black back wall of how many hymns there were. We'd run in, we'd think, great, there's only four. Then we'd open up the book and see there was like 12 verses, long verses. So we hated the church, but my mum loved it. 
And she managed to find people who could see past the mess. And they loved her. And what they taught her is that there was a God who was approachable. And so what did she do? She approached him. And she, at night, would come into our bedroom. My sister and I shared a bedroom. And she would pray. And oh my gosh, it would all come flooding out. And she would pour out her heart to God. Pour it out. And um, as she did that, it was like there was this exchange or like this transaction going on. It was like for all her anxiety and for all her pent-up nervousness, there was like this kind of peace. Now, I didn't see it at the time, but I kind of knew that something was going on. See, she wasn't clever enough to filter what she said to God. She wasn't necessarily interested in making clever sentences. She just poured out her heart. And it was like there was this amazing exchange between her and God because I learnt from that that prayer is a two-way thing. And we need to expect God to hear us. And as she poured out her heart and I saw this dynamic happening between her and God, this raw, genuine sort of conversation going on, it became very formative for me. Now, I didn't find God in the Baptist church, but I certainly believe that hearing my mum having that close relationship with God really spoke to me, and it was very formative, and it's the most significant single factor, I think, in me finding faith later on in my life. I think what it was is I learnt that God was approachable and accessible. And I carried that on right through until I was about 15 or 16 until I approached him in the most serious way and decided to give my life to him. There's this great example of prayer by a guy called Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was one of those prophets I told you about. He's not Samuel, he was a different one, but he had a particularly hard job. You see, God told him to go and talk to these people called Judah and tell them that if they didn't clean their act up, disaster was going to come. Now, Jeremiah wasn't particularly interested in the job because he knew what happened to their cousins up the road, the 10 other 12s of his. 12 tribes of Israel. You see, they'd had the same message over the many years, and they didn't listen to it, and disaster came, and they got taken off to Assyria. And now Jeremiah was asked, go and talk to these people in, um, in Judah and tell them if they don't clean their act up, disaster was going to come. Now, Jeremiah didn't want the job. He did it for 40 years unfailingly in a way that he just was met with aggression. It was a dreadful job. They did awful things to him. They would not listen to him, but that was the passive response. What was aggressive were things like floggings and being put under arrest in stocks and chucked down a well. And Jeremiah had a great way of expressing himself to God in prayer. And there's this great prayer that's recorded by Jeremiah and God, and it's so good. It's kind of like you've stepped into this um, private conversation. You've ever stepped into a conversation before, and you think, I don't know if I should be listening to this. You know, it was kind of one of those, and it's um, found in Jeremiah 15, if I can have the slide, and this is just a paraphrase of it. You see, Jeremiah's had a gutsful. 
He's had a gutsful of the abuse he gets for his life. He's had a gutsful of the difficulty because he's the good guy in all of this. You know, he's doing what God wants him to do. And all he's getting is pushback. And so Jeremiah says this to God. and this, He says, don't destroy me, God, while you remain patient with them. The them are the people of Judah that are persecuting him. Think about me and the shame I suffer for you. God, this ain't fear. I don't understand why my pain has no end. Have you ever felt like saying that to God? I don't understand why my injury is not cured or healed. Ever felt like saying that to God? Will you be like a brook that goes dry? Will you be like a spring that stops flowing? Oh my goodness, that is so real. That's how Jeremiah knew God enough to be very honest. He was basically questioning his faith to God and saying, look, are you going to show up here or are you just going to leave me to drown? You know, some of us would be too scared to say that to God. But there was such a robust, raw and active, dynamic relationship with God, this conversation was quite natural. And God talks back. Fancy that. And God doesn't, he's just, God is just as un-PC in his response as Jeremiah was to God. And just to paraphrase it, the Lord responds, he says, take your words back, repent. I'm not like a brook that goes dry, that's not who I am. Speak the things that have worth, like, get it together. But I am with you, and I will save you and rescue you. You see, why I love this example of a prayer is because we've got this very real relationship being put on ink and paper for us right here. That's the type of relationship we can have with God. So real, so honest, just like any relationship that's of any worth to you, there are times where you have to be totally honest. And you can have that with God. And it's not like he said, I'm going to smite you for saying those words. He responded, and he says, no, you're wrong about this. So he He corrected Jeremiah, and then he clarified what he wanted him to do, go and speak words that have got worth, and then he comforts him. I didn't try and have three C's, but it just kind of came. So, you know, God is so honest, so aware of your personal situation that he can speak into it, regardless of whether you think it's the right words to say to him, because once again, God is after this, the heart. So what do we learn about prayer from Jeremiah? Come to the next slide, please. It's a two-way thing. Expect God to respond to you. Expect the relationship to be two-way. It's relationship building. Be authentic. Have raw honesty. It's gritty conversations. It's not nice little polite sentences. You know, whilst there's times for that. Like there's, you know, there's praise and worship. Oh, there's a great time for that. But sometimes you have to pour your heart out to God. And there's this great invitation to grow our relationship with God, go beyond the niceties, and get down to the business of getting to know Jesus. The last thing my mum taught me is that life can be ambiguous. You see, um, my mum left with a lot of loose ends. When she um, was coming up to the end of her life, she not only was struggling with a mental illness, she had kidney failure as well because of the years of medication she'd been on. And then she started getting dementia. It was like the three evil sisters. And um, it was quite a mix, I have to say. So um, 
she became quite distant. And it was quite difficult because I was living in Auckland and she was down in the Wairapa and I would go down to see her. I'd have to take time out of my work, schedule leaves. Um, flights were a bit more expensive back then. And I'd go down there because I knew I had a limited time frame to spend with her. And I'd get there and she wouldn't want to talk. And I got to the point where I thought, she doesn't want me here. So I thought, I'm just going to ask her. I said, Mum should I bother coming down? And she said, no, not really. I really just want to spend time with your brother. And that was probably one of the last conversations I had with her. And it wasn't like I could try and make it right because she just didn't have the material going on to make it right. You know, she just wasn't thinking straight. And, um, you know, she left me with that loose end. But we shouldn't be surprised. Because loose ends happen in life. I've long given away the, the idea that everything ends like a good movie, where the baddie gets shot and the lovers find themselves miraculously against all odds. You know? There's this fantastic quote by a guy called Eugene Peterson. I can't recommend him enough as a writer. And he uh, translated the Message Bible. And he did a book based on Jeremiah. That's why I'm talking about Jeremiah a bit today. And um, with Jeremiah, he sums up his life with uh, the last of his book with this quote. Oh, it gets me every time. It says, life can be ambiguous. There are loose ends. It takes maturity. Don't we love that word? Maturity. To live with the ambiguity and the chaos, the absurdity and the untidiness. If we refuse to live with it, we exclude something. And what we exclude may very well be the essential and dear, the hazards of faith, the mysteries of God. I've never heard anyone talk about the hazards of faith before. We want to know, no, sorry, it goes, Jeremiah ends inconclusively. We want to know the end, but there is no end. We want to know he was finally successful so that if we live well and courageously, we too will be successful, just like the fairy story. Or we want to know he was finally unsuccessful so that since a life of faith and integrity doesn't pay off, that we can get on with finding another means by which to live. You see, Jeremiah ends with him being dragged off, uh, the coming disaster that he prophesied happened, and then they all took off to Egypt because Egypt looked good. God told them not to go to Egypt, the few that were left behind. And they, they didn't listen to Jeremiah again, and he's dragged off to Egypt where he knows where they shouldn't be, and then we hear no more of him. Jeremiah's life ends inconclusively. Why does uncertainty and ambiguity get to us so much? And I think it's because we are still looking for the fairy story. And sometimes there is no fairy story. And when my life at times have become unraveled and undone, it's because I think I deep down have had a what's in it for me kind of attitude towards God, where I've wanted to cherry pick the types of experiences I wanted to choose and the ones I didn't. You see, in Jeremiah's day, they didn't want to listen to God, and when the 
push came to shove, they still didn't want to listen to them to him, so they ran off to Egypt where it looked better. But disaster waited for them. And when disaster's been in my life, I've wanted to think, well, God, that you, and I throw my toys out the cot, and I think, well, bugger this, you know, I'm going to go. And I'm going to go and do my own thing. But you see, the thing is, we don't get to cherry pick. Life does have loose ends. And we have to stay with God sometimes in the devastation while he slowly builds his life back into us and we have to be patient with his process. So Jesus himself, right at the end of his life, he ends quite an ambiguous end as well because he was the son of God now facing a sinner's cross. I didn't, I mean, that really does my head in. Because it's so unjust, and it's so not what God is about, you'd think. But that's what Jesus did. And when he was finishing his life, he had some very deep and intimate conversations with his closest disciples, and he was starting to prepare them for his exit. And you'll find these great scriptures in the book of John, which is the fourth chapter into the New Testament. About 13, 14, 15, 16, around those chapters, there's these really intimate conversations that Jesus is having. And right at the end, he's saying to his disciples, look, I'm going to go, but don't worry. I'm going to leave behind the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and he's going to be with you. And he finished off with this sentence. I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you may have trouble, ambiguity, loose ends, difficulties, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So he never leaves us alone in our trouble. That peace mentioned in that scripture is a lot like the Hebrew word for shalom, well-being, wholeness. So even in our devastation, even in our brokenness, even in our mess, there is a wholeness and well-being we can find in God as we get through it. So what do we do with all of this today? You might feel a lot like my mum, where the world has pegged you into a certain hole. You might feel that you are defined by your mess where Jesus no longer defines us by our mess, but by the blessing of his life in us. And it might be that you want to do something about that today. Maybe you need some people to stand with you. It might be that you need to give up the idea of trying to get your life all together and then surrender to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus so that he can work on the mess on your behalf. It might be that you are hearing God's invitation to deepen your relationship with him through prayer, having those real conversations, having those honest, gut-wrenching, not everything's gut-wrenching, by the way, but by having those honest conversations. It might be like you're Jeremiah and you feel like your pain has no end. Or asking God why your injury was never healed. Or trying to make sense of a loose end. Or someone that was, has left you in life and left you with loose ends or a broken relationship. Because life can be ambiguous. I think we can come with whatever it is that Jesus puts on your heart and bring it to him today. Now, there aren't instant fixes. I'm not going to promise you a fairy story. But what I know 
is that God is always in our trouble, giving his peace, giving his clarification, giving us comfort. And he's in our mess to help make us not stay as we are. So if that's you, and you would like someone to stand with you this morning, you're welcome to come and seek prayer.